Well, we should be, be in Mark right now, uh, Mark chapter 1. Hope, hope you're there as we look at Mark and the good news of, of Christmas uh, this week and next. We're going to read verses 1 through 8, and so if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Here's what uh, Mark writes to begin his gospel. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt round his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. Let's, let's pray together. Father, thanks for your word. Thanks for the opportunity to get together here this morning and, and worship you. Worship you through singing songs together and through encouraging each other and to worship you through the, the study and the application of, of your word, scripture. Help us to do so well today. We pray uh, this Christmas season that we would be thinking about you. And that you would help us to proclaim the good news of your son Jesus to those to whom you bring into our life. And we pray this for your glory in the name of your son Jesus. Amen. A friend was asking me on Friday uh, how I felt like the sermon preparation was going. I said, well, uh, honestly, uh, it, it does feel like things are going a little bit rough this week. And I was thinking about why that was, and I think part of it is we've been in First John so long, and I kind of get immersed in that world of First John that to kind of move to Mark is, is a little bit disjointed, I, I feel. And I think it's good to just kind of remember why we have this time each, each week, this, this time of preaching. At Bethany Community, we believe that the, the purpose of preaching is fairly simple, right? We believe that the purpose of preaching is to communicate what, what God's Word says. We believe that Scripture contains all that we need for life and godliness, that Scripture contains God's Word concerning how we're to live and who He is and how we can be in fellowship with Him and His desire for our lives. We believe that Scripture contains all of that. And, and so the purpose on a Sunday morning is, is not for me to communicate just some inspirational thoughts or some self-help ideas that I have, but to say, okay, uh, here's what Scripture says. We believe that as we communicate that, that message of Scripture, the authority for preaching comes not from the person who's up here talking, but the authority of the message comes from the text itself. And so our responsibility is to say, okay, here's what the text said to the original audience. Here's what it means and what, what it meant to them. And now here are kind of some of the universal truths that are contained in this text. And now let's talk together as a community of faith about how we apply those truths in our life 
our lives today. That's, that's what preaching is. And so I, it's, it's, the term we use is expositional preaching, expositing the text, explaining what the text says. So I, I told my friend, I said, so it's, it's been a little, bit, uh, a little bit difficult today to try to immerse, or this week, to try to immerse myself in the world of Mark. And here Mark is referring to two other uh, prophets, and we'll kind of get, get into that later. And so that, that's kind of difficult as well. And he said, well, what about this? Is it, is it difficult? Is it difficult to preach a, a Christmas message in a, in a new way each Christmas season? And I said, oh, absolutely, yes. <laughs> this is our, our seventh Christmas together as, as a church. and uh, the, the Christmas story has stayed the same. So we have to think through, okay, how am I to take the truths contained in it and apply it in a, in a new way? Uh, in each of our lives. And now, what we've done before is we've gone through Old Testament passages talking about the Christmas story. We've gone through Matthew, and we've gone through Luke, and we've gone through John, and we've talked about the Christmas uh, story in each of those, and John was a little more theologically <coughs> theologically based. The problem we have with Mark uh, is that Mark doesn't contain the Christmas narrative. So there's some unique challenges there. Oh, and we're doing it two weeks. So two weeks in a passage that doesn't contain the Christmas story around Christmas time, there are some unique challenges to that to be, to be, to be true. So uh, here's what I want us to do as we go through the Gospel of Mark this week and next. What I want us to do is I want us to look at what Mark is saying as he opens this Gospel account, this story of Jesus' life. I want us to, to walk through what Mark says and this week we're going to look especially at verses 1 through 3. And, and then I want us to begin to, to look at five, five words that are related to the gospel and, and Christmas, okay? And so we're going to look at two, two and a half this morning, and then two, two and a half uh, next week. And we'll see what we can glean from the Christmas story, even from a, a, a passage of Scripture that doesn't contain that Christmas narrative exactly, but contains some principles that are crucial to helping us understand and apply the truth of Christmas in our lives. And so let's just go ahead and open up your Bible. Hopefully your Bible is already there to, to Mark chapter 1. And, and let's look at the first three verses. I just want to kind of draw your attention to a couple things that are here. And, and then we're going to look at kind of some, some Christmas words that are related to the gospel and helping us understand and apply Christmas in our lives. So the first three verses, it says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And then he goes on and talks about John the Baptist, who appeared baptized in the wilderness and proclaiming this, this baptism of, of repentance. Now, the first thing that I want you to see in these verses is I want you to see where Mark begins. Mark doesn't begin, as we've already said, with the infancy narrative, the story of Jesus being born, but Mark's concerns are theological, and Mark begins with kind of this, this theological beginning. He begins with the, the baptism of John in the wilderness, and we'll talk about why that's so important here in, in just a moment. Here's another thing I want you to see as is, is he talks about the beginning of, of Jesus' ministry. Look at, look at the word that he uses there as he describes Jesus' ministry. What word does he use? He says the beginning of the what? Of, of the gospel. Of the gospel. Now, now, what does that word gospel mean? 
we live kind of in an age in which the word gospel has kind of made a resurgence in evangelical life. If you were to walk out, go down the hallway and look at our book table, you could probably find a, quite a few resources with the word gospel in them, either in the title or the subtitle. So there's, you know, the, the gospel-centered this or the gospel-centered that or gospel, uh, gospel primer or gospel treason, uh, gospel, the explicit gospel is a book out there. I, I've gone to a conference called the Gospel Coalition. I've gone to another co- uh, conference called Together for the Gospel. Gospel, the word gospel is, is all over the place right now, and that is a very good thing, right? We want our, our faith to be centered on this good news of Jesus Christ, and now that's, that's good, but what does it mean when we use the word gospel? And more importantly, what would Mark's audience have understood about this word gospel when they encountered it here in Mark chapter 1, verse 1? Well, the word gospel comes from the Old English, God spool, good news. And that word, phrase God spool, from the Old English, comes from a Greek word that Mark uses here. And the Greek word was euangelion. Euangelion. It means good news. Euangelion was a word the ancient Greeks would use to describe a prize given. And so what would happen is a, a herald would, would come, a messenger would come and come into a community and, and proclaim some good news. And this, this good news would be the, the victory of a ruler or something. So we, we've achieved victory and that messenger would receive the euangelion, this, this prize for declaring this good news. And as the word continued to be used, the word euangelion, gospel, came not to refer to the prize that the messenger received, but the news the messenger gave. And so a messenger would come and would announce the arrival of an emperor or the reign of an emperor or the victory of an emperor, and that that good news, that that message became the the gospel. That was what that that message would be called, the, the gospel, the euangelion, the good news. And it wasn't just like kind of good news. It wasn't just casual good news. It wasn't like, hey, good news, I got a good night's sleep last night, or good news, I had a great meal just a little while ago. It was, it was good news, and Mark's readers would have understood this. It was good news, usually referring to the, the reign of an emperor or the, the victory that an emperor or a ruler achieved. In fact, there's a, an inscription from the time in which Mark is writing it, couple decades earlier, but kind of that same time frame. And this inscription was referring to Caesar Augustus, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it, but it said something like this. It was talking about Caesar Augustus, who's the, the savior of the world, uh, Caesar Augustus, who is so uh, awesome that he's better than anyone who came before him, and he's so awesome we feel bad for people in the future because they'll never be as good as he is. And uh, this is the, the, the good news of Caesar Augustus. This is the, the gospel, the euangelion. And so, the second thing I want you to see here is, as we look at Mark chapter 1, is I want you to see that Mark refers to this, the story of Jesus' life, and the beginning of it is the beginning of, of the gospel, the beginning of the, the good news. And Mark's readers would have understood that as he's presenting Jesus, he's presenting Jesus as this, 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 this ruler, this, this king. And we'll come back to why that's significant here in, in a few minutes. 
What's interesting, too, is as Mark goes through, he's not going to present Jesus as some, some tyrannical, conquering emperor. He's going to present Jesus as this suffering servant. But here he is, this good news, this, this gospel, this euangelion, this announcement of a coming ruler, the beginning of the, the story of this good news of this coming ruler. Now, if you look at the text there, you see that Mark, as he talks about the beginning of the, of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the Son of God, he, he begins to quote. And, and he, it says here, as, written, as, as is written in Isaiah, but really it's not just Isaiah, it's also Malachi. There are two passages that Mark is referring to, and he refers to it as Isaiah because Isaiah kind of carries the, the dominant theme here. Most of the quotation is from Isaiah, but, and Isaiah is the, the more uh, prominent prophet between the two. But he's quoting both Malachi and Isaiah. And before we get into these five words that I want us to consider this week and next, I want us to look at the passage in Malachi that he's quoting and the passage that he's quoting in Isaiah. So keep your finger there in Mark 1. And first of all, turn to Malachi. Malachi chapter 3. Malachi is written, we believe, uh, the last book of the Old Testament probably that was written, and it's the last book in the Old Testament in terms of the order of the books in your Bible. And uh, Malachi is written after the people, the, the Jews, have been in exile and they've come out of exile, they've rebuilt the temple, and they're unaware of how they're failing to live in obedience to God. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But Malachi 3, verse 1 is what Mark quotes, but let me just go a, a couple verses before chapter 3, verse 1 of Malachi. Go up to chapter 2, verse 17, and let me read to you kind of the context of which Mark is quoting. He says in verse 17, this is Malachi writing, You've wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? You've wearied him, Malachi says, by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where's the God of justice? And we'll talk more about this in a moment, but you see there's, there's a relational disconnect between God and his people, and they don't even understand why this disconnect exists. And so Malachi tells them there's a messenger coming. He says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. This is God speaking. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And, and who can stand when he, when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will set, sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. And so Mark, as he quotes Malachi chapter 3, stay with me here, what he is doing is he is quoting a passage that describes a coming messenger, a messenger that's going to prepare the way for Yahweh. And Yahweh, as this messenger prepares the way for him, Yahweh will come and, and he will refine the people's hearts so that they can worship him in righteousness. Okay? That's Malachi. 
Now turn back in your Bible to Isaiah, Isaiah 40. Here's the other passage that Mark quotes. Isaiah is prophesying probably sometime from the end of the reign of Uzziah all the way through Hezekiah, and so it's probably sometime from like uh, 740 A.D. to about 681, I'm sorry, B.C., uh, 740 B.C. to about uh, 681 B.C. So this is before, slightly before the fall of the northern kingdom and, and, then, and then after the fall of the northern kingdom. It's before the people of Judah are carried away into captivity. So Malachi, he's writing after the people have gone into captivity and come back. Isaiah is writing before that's taken place. And in Isaiah chapters 1 through 38, he describes the, the coming exile and he describes God's judgment. And then he comes to chapter 40, and in chapter 40, there's a message of, of comfort. So the bad stuff is in the first chapters, and then he comes to chapter 40, and there's a message of comfort. 40 verse 1, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And then this is the, the verse that Mark quotes, verse 3, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Okay, so what's this passage declaring? This passage is also talking about this time of preparation and a person who is preparing the way for Yahweh for the coming of the Lord. A time in which sin is going to be forgiven and dealt with and people are going to be able to, to rightly worship God. There's going to be a time of, of comfort. Okay, so let's, let's bring all that together. Back to, back to Mark. What is Mark saying? What's Mark saying? He's using this word gospel and what does the word gospel mean? The word gospel is this good news proclaiming a king. And as he begins this, this message of the beginning of the, of the gospel, the good news of King Jesus, he says that there's going to be one who, who comes and prepares the way for this king. And who's that? That's John the Baptist. Here's the main thing I want you to think about and meditate upon this week and next. Here's, here's the main thing. The coming of the King, the coming of King Jesus that we sing about at Christmas and we celebrate, the coming of King Jesus is good news. Now, we may say, absolutely, we believe that that's good news and we, we're so happy at Christmas and we're so happy as we think about baby Jesus being born in the manger and, and, all, and all those things, and, and that's good, we should be. But do you really understand what it means, that the phrase that there's a, a coming king? You see, Jesus Christ coming as king doesn't just mean that Jesus is coming to establish a political kingdom. Yay, we're going to live under a just king. That, that's, that's not the sum totality of King Jesus' reign, right? King Jesus coming doesn't mean that he's just going to be uh, king over the, the bad people and deal with the bad people. 
when we say that, that King Jesus, the suffering servant, is, is coming as king, we mean, Mark means, that, that this good news is proclaiming that Jesus Christ is coming as king over everything. There is no nook or cranny in all the universe that King Jesus is not going to reign over. And again, that may sound great in abstract, but think about what that means. It means there is no aspect of your life that Jesus is not king over. Me as, as husband, there's no aspect of me being a husband that, that Jesus is not king over. Me being a, a friend, there's no aspect of my friendships that God has not sent Jesus to be king over those areas. There's no aspect of my parenting or my finances or my thoughts or my emotions, or my responses to the things, there is no aspect of my soul that is not to be subject under the reign of King Jesus. That is a profound truth. It is the truth of Christmas. It's the truth that the Gospel of Mark proclaims. He says, look, John the Baptist comes, and he comes in line with how he's been prophesied to come in the Old Testament, and he comes, John the Baptist comes as a herald saying, the king is coming, King Jesus is coming, and the good news is that he is going to reign supreme. The coming of the king is good news. All right, so that's, that's the backdrop. Now let's kind of talk about these, these five words that help us understand why this is good news. And we'll talk about two or three of them this morning and then cover the rest of them next week and also look at the rest of, of Mark chapter 1 verses 4 through 8 next week, a little bit more depth. But here's the first word. Now, the first word is, is the word sin, right? The word sin. Let's think about these, these three time periods that we encounter here in Mark chapter 1. As we look at Mark chapter 1, we encounter Mark's time period, and we encounter also Isaiah's time period, and we encounter Malachi's time period, and, and each of these periods of time is, is marked by sin, right? Remember, as we've been going through 1 John, we've said that sin isn't just some sort of failure to follow a bunch of rules. Sin is relational, as we think about Jesus, as we think about God and, and his character and who God is, sin is a deviation from the character of God, and it, it's violation of our covenant relationship with God. Now, let me just give you some examples. As we think about the book of Isaiah, what do we see in the book of Isaiah? In the book of Isaiah, we see people who are, are not living in right relationship with God. So, for example, you come to Isaiah chapter 5, and we see the prophet Isaiah described the people in relationship to God and, and his character. And you come for, to example in Isaiah 5, verse 8, and the prophet Isaiah says, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there's no more room, and you're all made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of the hosts has, has sworn in my hearing, Surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall, shall yield but one bath, and a Homer of seed shall yield but an ephah, and woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, they have tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, 
But listen to this. Even as they pursue these, these sensual delights, even as they pursue these, these worldly pleasures, even as they pursue these things in greed, Isaiah says, and here's the essence of sin, they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. He says, therefore, therefore they go into exile. What, why are they going to go into exile? Because they, they haven't rightly understand, understood who God is and, and the relationship with him. And they've lived in a way that's contrary to who God is in his character. Let me give you another example. Look at the book of Malachi that we've been looking at, talking about. In the book of Malachi, remember you have these, these people who have come out of exile and been there for, for several decades now and, and if, or, or since the temple has been rebuilt. And if you were to ask the people of Malachi, hey, hey, tell us about your relationship with God, the people of Malachi would have said, we're in good relationship with God. And if you were to say, well, uh, people in, the, in uh, the book of Malachi, Malachi's day, tell us why are you in good relationship with God, the people would say, look, we do everything that, that God asks of us. Temple rebuilt, check. Uh, sacrifices offered, absolutely. That whole, um, you know, worshiping multiple gods problem we had in the past, done with. We are worshiping one God, Yahweh God. We are good to go. In fact, as you read through the book of Malachi, it's, it's, it's shocking just how clueless they are. Over and over again in the book of Malachi, you see them ask questions like, uh, I say, what? What are you talking about, God? Why are you so upset? What, what's your deal, God? Look at Malachi chapter 1, for example. The priests, uh, Malachi addresses them, and he's talking, God's addressing them through Malachi, and he he says, look, you're supposed to honor me. And the priests say, now, hold on a second, verse 6. What are you talking about? Verse 6, how have we despised your name? What do you mean? He tells them, look, you offer polluted food upon my altar. But they still don't get it. Like, what polluted food? What are you talking about? He says, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. And he talks about, uh, he says in verse 10, I, I wish there was someone among you that would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I, I have no pleasure in you. That's key. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I'm not going to accept an offering from your hand. I'm a great God. For from the rising of the sun, verse 11, to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name. And a pure offering, my name will be great among the nations. You profane it, he says in verse 12. And you say, what a weariness this is. Ugh. As you engage in worship. And we come to the passage that Malachi or that Mark quotes from Malachi. You see it's kind of at the end of a section where the people have not exercised faithfulness to their wives, and they're not living in covenant faithfulness to the wife of their youth. And they say, hey, look, what's, everyone who does evil is good. God's okay with us. You see, as you look at Malachi and Isaiah, what you see is 
or what you don't see is you don't see one sin. You don't see this, this one rule that, oh, man, these people are breaking it, and, and that's sin, and you shouldn't break this rule. What you see in Isaiah and Malachi, what you see in Mark and in Jesus' day, is you see people who are not living in covenant relationship with Yahweh God. God's problem with the people of Malachi isn't about checking some rule boxes. What he's telling the people of Malachi's day is, look, you don't know what it means to be in relationship with me. You don't know who I am, and, and you're not living in light of who I am, and, and you're offering me this, this garbage because you don't rightly recognize who I am, and, and that's the essence of what sin is. If this is the character of God and, and who he is, any sin is, is when we deviate from that, when we don't live as, as God has called us to live, in light of his glory and his majesty and his excellency. I was reading a little bit from uh, an author named John Frame this last week, and, and he had a, a section in there on sin in the book that I was reading that's uh, called Systematic, his Systematic Theology book, that I thought was very helpful. He said, what makes something righteous? What makes an act that we do righteous? He said that there's, there's at least three elements of it, and I think these are very biblical. He says, when we do something righteous, first of all, we're doing the action God has told us to do. And so there's, there's this instruction he's given us, and, and so we're, we're doing the right action. He said, secondly, though, we're not just doing the right action, but we're doing it with the, the right goal. And what's the right goal for all of life? It's that God would be glorified, right? So a, a righteous act, it's the right thing. We're doing what God has told us to do, but we're doing it with the right goal that God would be glorified. And we're doing it from the right motivation, faith, belief. Anything not of, of faith is sin, right? So we do what we're told for the glory of God, motivated by faith, by belief that what God has told us to do is right. That's, that's righteousness. And I think that's a, a very good way to understand what makes an action righteous. Well, then, what makes something sinful? What makes an action sinful? It's the opposite. I have a false standard, so instead of saying, what does God tell me to do or not do, I, I say, well, my standard and what I believe is right is, is this or that. And so it's a false standard. It's with false goals. And instead of my, my desire saying, okay, how in this situation in life is, is God going to be glorified, my goal is my, my own glory, my own self-glorification. Then, not only do I have the wrong standard, a false standard, a, a false goal, but I have a false motivation. My motivation is, is from unbelief, a lack of belief that what God has said to do is, is what's right, a failure to trust him in pursuing a difficult path of obedience. Now, if, if that's what sin is, failure on, on any of those parts, either doing what I'm told to do but for the wrong reasons or, or doing it but, but not having faith that this is going to work out well, then so much of my life is characterized by sin. Whitney and I, just last night, we were, we were talking about the things that we've done that we think are good, and, and as, we, as we analyze our motives, we say, man, are we, are we doing these things for God's glory? Or even as we do the right things, are we motivated for our, our own glory, to, to look good in the eyes of other people. And it's, it's hard, right? It's hard. 
as we think about these three periods, Malachi's day, Isaiah's day, Mark's day, we, we see all of them characterized by sin. God is addressing people in their sin in times where they're not in right relationship with him. There's a violation of relationship that's existing as we, we think about the first John language that we've been going through and how John describes our fellowship with God and, and sin as a failure to be in right rela- relationship with him. So, What's the result of that? Well, that brings us to this next word that we see as we think about Christmas message here in Mark and the good news, and this good news that contains bad news. The second word I want us to think about this morning is distress. Distress. In Isaiah, this passage that Mark is quoting from, in Isaiah, he proclaims comfort, but It's comfort that comes as a result of distress. Let me give you a couple things that Isaiah has said before he gets to Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 and following. In Isaiah 6, listen to the distress that that Isaiah is told to proclaim to the people. He says in Isaiah 6, verse 9, God tells Isaiah, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And then I said to the Lord, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it's felled. Can you imagine being Isaiah? And having to confront people with the reality of sin and then, and then talk about this coming distress that's going to result from sin. Right before he gets to, to chapter 40 and gets to proclaim this message of hope, he has to do Isaiah 39. And this is what he says to the king Hezekiah in verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. This is a hard hard thing to say. But for us to understand the good news of Christmas and the comfort that God calls us to proclaim, to experience and then proclaim, For us to understand that the depth of the good news, we have to understand, at least as far as we're able, the depth of the bad news, right? The reality of sin is that it always leads to distress. Now, I want to be be biblical in what I'm about to say and, and, and clear. Those are both good things, right? Biblical and clear. When you find yourself in a distressful situation, it's not always the result of your own sin, right? You could find yourself in a situation in which you're being persecuted or a situation where you're experiencing just the trials of life, the reality of living in a fallen world, a fallen world, 
health complications that are part of God's process of, of sanctifying you. So, so that, hear that first, okay? But also understand this. The result of sin is always distress. And I'll say from my own personal experience, and, and this is biblical, I sometimes find myself in situations of distress that have been brought about by my own sin. The people in Isaiah's day are warned, look, this sin is going to lead to a time of distress, and it does. The people in Malachi's day are warned, look, this, this sin is going to result in a time of distress, and it does. The people in Mark's day are warned, look, hey, this sin is going to lead to a time of distress, and it does. And God's word to us also is, look, sin leads to distress in your life, and it does. And, and maybe this morning you find yourself in very, very dark place. And perhaps part of what has brought you to that dark place is, is sin. And I would say this, I would say that God bringing you to a place of distress is not a sign that he doesn't love you, but actually further evidence of his great love for you. It is an act of a sovereign, loving, merciful God who will not allow you to experience joy apart from obedience to him. God knows that in him is fullness of joy, and if he allowed you to experience joy apart from his presence, he would not be a loving God. And so there is every possibility this morning that God has brought you to a place of distress because he loves you, and he wants you to experience the consequence of sin so you can turn to him and experience his joy. That's the message John the Baptist is going to proclaim. That, that's, the, that's the gospel. Hey, there's this king, and this king is going to reign over every area of your life. And, and that may sound, from our, a human perspective, a self-exalting perspective, that may sound like a bad thing, but it's actually a very, very good thing because there is no way that you can experience joy apart from submitting to this king. It's good news. Let me just touch on a third word here this morning. The third word here is, is comfort. Comfort. We need relief from our distress. And, and, and I want you this morning to receive comfort. And that matters almost not at all. The good news is that God wants you to experience relief from your distress. He wants you to experience his comfort. And we, we've looked at Isaiah and what Isaiah says about comfort, comfort my people in, in verse 1. But in cha of chapter 40, but what happens in chapter 40 is in chapters 1 through 39, there's been this time of distress and proclaiming God's judgment. And now as Isaiah proclaims comfort, comfort, he begins this new section in which we see God's desire to bring comfort to a people who have been distressed. And let me just read you a couple passages that describe the comfort that God desires to bring his people in this longer section describing God's deliverance. Isaiah 40, verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Isaiah 42, 16, I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are things I do, and I do not forsake them. Isaiah 43, 19, 
Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Don't you perceive it? I, I will make a way in wilderness, in the wilderness, and I will make, listen to this, I will make rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals, the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. Isaiah 44, verse 3, 44, verse 3, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. Who is Yahweh God? Why does Yahweh God cause our sin, our, our, our pursuit of joy apart from him, why does he cause it to lead to distress? Why does he cause us to enter into places of wilderness? You know why I believe he does that? so that we will know that Yahweh God is the one who pours out water and rivers in the desert. Perhaps this Christmas, God has brought you to a desert place. And the reason that he's brought you into that desert is so that you can experience that it is only in him that you can receive the, the water of eternal life. You see, the comfort that God offers is only found in him. Without Yahweh's presence, there's no salvation we see here in Isaiah. A voice cries out in verse 3, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The glory of the Lord will be revealed. Verse 9 of Isaiah 40, Get up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, and you say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Verse 10, the Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for them. His reward is with him, and his recompense before him. Here in Mark 1, Mark begins with the good news of Jesus. And as we see the, the good news, this good news is the proclamation of a coming king. A king who will rule over every area of life. And the joy and the comfort that he brings, the, the water that he offers in the wilderness, only comes through him. It only comes through King Jesus. We're going to continue to talk about that, that joyous source of water, Jesus Christ next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of your son Jesus, for the, the water in the wilderness, that, that joy that we can have through, through life in him. And we, we pray, we pray this week that we'd be faithful to turn to you, only you, for our joy and our comfort, our strength, our satisfaction. We pray that as you, you bring people into our lives who, who don't know you, that we would be faithful in, in proclaiming that good news to them, that gospel, the, the good news of King Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.